If you're just tuning in, I suggest you go back and start listening from chapter one. Before we start, a content warning. This episode contains graphic accounts of gun violence as well as domestic and sexual violence. We're hot micing it. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And I just like, there are other issues like... I'm not even going to start saying that sentence. Nope, we can't talk about that. <laughs> All right, so... Let me pause it. Last week, we covered the two most helpful witnesses in the state's case, Kathy Bell and Dr. DeStefano. This week, we're going down the rabbit hole of detrimental witnesses. We're talking about the testimony of Officer Laura Fatum, Terry's best friend, Robert Martin, and Officer Bennett. On today's episode, we'll show you the evidence that really puts April in an impossible hole to climb out of. This is Panic Button, Episode 7, Ninja in the Night, Part 2. I'm your co-host, Colleen McCarty. And I'm Leslie Briggs. It's time to move into the detrimental witnesses, Um, and we're going to talk about them in turn. And the first one we're going to talk about is the one that comes chronologically first, which is Officer Laura Fadum. So Officer Laura Fadum was a relatively new officer on the force at the time that she responded to the 911 call at Terry's house. And we're just going to read some pieces now from her answers on direct about what April had said when she showed up to the house and also how April was responding when Officer Faden was driving her to the station. So this is the exchange. It goes like this from April's attorney. Question, did she indicate to you whether it was forcible or consensual sex? Answer, she didn't indicate to me. It sounded to me at that point it was forcible. I mean, it sounded to me that it was forcible. Question, okay, and you don't try to take over the SANE exam for another six hours? or however many hours it was, four or five hours. Yeah, and like overarching overarching all of Fatum's testimony is this narrative she's trying to maintain of like, I didn't ask her a single question. April just wanted to tell me everything, man. She had a story to tell. It was prepped. It was rehearsed. I mean, she doesn't say that in her testimony. She doesn't say it was rehearsed. But there's this theme, this inference that they're raising that like, Fatum doesn't even ask. Not one thing. And of course, so like, Chris Lyons kind of draws out of her. Are you sure you didn't ask her a single question? Not one inquiry did you make of her? Well, you know, I asked some clarifying questions. Who was that? Where were you? What was this? Who are we talking about? These kinds of things. So yeah, I asked her those questions, but I didn't ask anything else. Um, My thing is like, if any chance to impeach a witness on an inconsistency, and the state is very, very good about this, You must hone in. You just told this jury you didn't ask her a single question, and now you're saying that you asked clarifying questions. Are you sure that's all you asked her, Officer Fatum? Yeah, 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 I'm sure. Okay, well, did you ask her a clarifying question about this? Because there's there's a couple of things that um, Fatum testifies. Like, I was confused by that. She kind of consented to going upstairs, and I didn't really understand that. Okay, well, did you ask her a clarifying question about that? 
There's none of that, right? And I think it's a missed opportunity by the defense to impeach this witness. And this witness deserves to be impeached. And there are a couple of other inconsistencies with Batum's testimony that I think are important. She, at one point, April is talking to her um, while they're still at the house. And she says something like, um, I didn't want to go upstairs with him. And Fatum testifies that April tells her, but I relented. I relented because we had a violent past. And so it gives the jurors this picture of, of an inconsistency in April's statement that she decided to go upstairs with him. And then there's another part that she testifies that when they're in the car driving to the station that April tells Fatum that I kept letting him break into my house. Yeah, and that's a big one where Lyons didn't follow up and be like, well, did you didn't understand that. So did you clarify that with her? Did you ask her a question? Nothing. He doesn't ask any of those types of impeachment questions. Yeah. I kept letting, how do you let someone break into your house? I kept letting him. And it just doesn't sound like April to me. I mean, these like the way that Fatum characterizes things and the way that she testifies is very interesting because it's like very passive voice and it takes all of the tension or like emotion or terror kind of like that April experienced out of it. And just it like everything is so overly cleansed. It's just strange. And then she says, I didn't feel like she reacted appropriately. I didn't feel like her reactions were appropriate. And we're going to hear that over and over again in the state's case, that her reaction and her emotions and everything that happened to her that day weren't appropriate for someone who had just taken another person's life. She should have been upset. She should have been bereft. She should have been crying. But like, as we're going to see, there is no box in which April could have existed that would have been acceptable. If she was crying, she would have been acting. If she was, you know, quiet, she would have been uncooperative. If she was um, talking too much, she would have been too eager to tell everybody what happened. It's like there's no winning in this situation. Yeah, she's totally boxed in. She's totally boxed in. And just here's here's what a, what Fatum actually testifies to as far as the, the relenting. Um, so Fatum testifies, April finally gave in and they went upstairs. And that is not it at all. And what Fatum is getting wrong, she's also like, one, April never gave in and just went upstairs with him. The facts are wrong, bro. You have the events out of order. There are two times when April goes upstairs, right? There's the first time where she goes to use the bathroom and he comes up there and he rapes her. He follows her when she's trying to actually put some distance between them. That's time one that she goes upstairs. The second time she goes upstairs is when he's, again, getting more and more agitated. She's going to use the phone to try to call Luke and get some help sees the gun and puts it in her back pocket. That's the second time she goes upstairs. They just have these events completely out of order and they don't, I mean, they don't care about getting it right. That's true. And we see that again in a minute when we start talking about Officer Bennett. Like there's just some really substantive issues with how the actors in the system are tracking the details of something that is very important um, and complicated. I'm not going to say it's not complicated. People and humans are complicated and they do things that don't seem to make sense, especially going up and down and around and dates and not everybody gets everything right all the time. And that's fine. But like the amount of times we see like substantive details get messed up by the people who are the primary responders. Right. And um, that April's statement to, to Ken Makinson includes these these two these two trips upstairs. Right. So it's like I just don't buy that she's consistent every other time, except when Laura Fatum's talking to her. 
I don't, I don't buy that, right? I don't know. So there's this other bit that Laura Fatum does. Like Laura Fatum, like what you said about her cleansing the testimony is so spot on. Because she, there's this other bit of testimony where Lyons is asking her on cross-examination, well, so what did April say when she went back down to the basement? And Fatum's response is, she's, response is she says, first, he handcuffed her. She said that he handcuffed her with hands in front and that he pulled her over to the couch. She doesn't make any mention of the fact that what April has consistently said is that Terry has been threatening to rape her up the ass and kill her as he's doing that. Fatum doesn't mention that. So he, and then she goes, so Fatum goes on. So he pulled her over to couch and she told me at that point, she said that Terry made the mistake of turning around to get something. And she said that I made up my mind if he turned around and had an angry look on his face, I was going to shoot him. And she said when he turned around and had a mean look on his face, she shot him. I just, no, no. I mean, the made the mistake remark, we talked about this before, but like, there's so much buried in that remark to, that shows Laura Fatum's state of mind about this, that like he made the mistake to turn around. Like you're saying that from a time period where you're looking back at what happened retroactively and you're judging what happened in a way that is shedding a positive light on the person who was shot, which you would normally probably do as a police officer, and you're casting doubt on the person who was the shooter. You're not being an objective observer or a person who's testifying about what they saw at the scene, which is what she's been called to do, um, especially as the person that spent the most amount of time with April that day. Like, this is a case, this is the time, if I have ever seen another woman throw another woman under the bus, this is it. Like, yeah, this is so totally it. Yeah, like, totally, I, I agree 110% as far as, like, throwing another woman under the bus. And Phantom, she goes on and says some really damaging stuff for April. Um, Phantom testifies at one point, you know, April told me that her and Terry had some arguments, and she said that she, she told me that apparently Terry had been over at her house, something she just said, uh, you know, I just keep letting him break in my house. I just keep letting him in. I, he kept doing it, and I had decided to help myself. I had decided to make sure I had to be comfortable. So there's like this. There, I think there's nebulous truth to what April says here. I think maybe she could have said this right, like in the, in this in this way, um, this fact that I had to make myself comfortable. I had to help myself. Um, those statements, when they're presented from the responding officer after all the other damaging bullshit that she, I think, frankly, lied about. Um, Th that idea, and we're going to even even Dr. Call, the defense uh, expert, talks about this, but also the experts we've been talking to um, who work in this field today. This is a sign of being a battered woman that um, if you're stuck in a, a situation where you can, there's no escape and there's no help from the system, you have to take it into your own hands. You have to help yourself. No one else is going to help you. So this idea of I have to make myself comfortable, man, nobody else is helping me. I'm going to have to go over there and I'm going to have to deal with this on my own. I like that's how it comes through to me. Maybe that's a stretch. I mean, call us, write us, let me know if you think that's a stretch. But I really do think it's a, it's telling of a symptom of being a battered person. Yeah. And I think there's so many ways that you could take. I had to make myself comfortable. Um I, you could take it as like a very granular remark in that moment. Like I'm handcuffed. 
I've been raped and beaten and I have to make myself comfortable to the point like I have to shoot him because the only way I'm going to be safe in my body again is if he's dead. But then you could also take it like in the way that you're saying it, which is I had to make myself comfortable to exist, like to live in my home, to sleep in my bed, to know he's not going to break in, to know he's not coming after me. But the way that they're taking it is, of course, the most negative way possible, which is I had to I had to be comfortable. I had to I had to shoot him until he was dead so I could feel comfortable, which is like looking at the global context of this is definitely not what she meant. And I also just like I'm hearing it over. I'm thinking about it and I'm listening to us talk about it over and over again. I had to make myself comfortable. What, what what was uncomfortable about your life? Well, I was being stalked and terrorized. I was being raped. I was being threatened with rape. I was being beaten over and over again. Yeah, I was uncomfortable. Is putting it fucking mildly. I don't know. Yeah. But it, I, I can see how it just wouldn't, it would not land well, especially in the context that Fatim is saying it. Well, and this isn't, of course, the only case that people who are listening to this podcast have heard about where somebody says something like this and it's taken completely out of context to look like premeditation evidence. Okay, so like that statement right there is one of the pieces that Harris is using to meet his element of premeditation. I had to make myself comfortable. And they say over and over again in Wadir, we don't have to prove motive. But we have to prove premeditation, which is just that seconds before this happened, we have to prove that she had an intention. Yep. Yeah, I think um, the premeditated part, yeah, they're latching on to uh, statements in, made in isolation, or taken out of context and, and isolated and, you know, warped. But, one, you know, one of the things that I think is also happening when she's talking to both Fatum and Makinson is um, we've talked about this with like that she's rationalizing it out loud because April will talk, man. She will talk and she will talk fast, even when she's not having just shot someone and survived a very harrowing night. She will talk quickly and about a lot of detail all at once. It's just who she is. And to me, it's like, God, we, we without getting too far afield, I'm sorry, but like over and over and over again, we see that listed as like a sign of her psychosis, a sign of her mental illness. It's not psychosis, it's just her personality. I mean, some Women people, can talk fast without like, being mentally ill. Haven't you ever described anyone as a chatterbox before? Or like, uh, she's just really talkative or chatty Kathy or like, I mean, I hear women described like this all the time. Um, but this, in this case, like we're taking a, what would otherwise be just a completely innocent personality trait and making it into a symptom of mania. It's nuts to me that like, a f she's a fast talker, and they, they it gets so warped by like these these hospital records, because like she's also dealing with trauma in the, these moments when she is in front of these psychologists and psychiatrists. She is dealing with trauma, which compounds I think the fast talking. And April will also do as I do, is laugh when shit gets awkward or uncomfortable or scary. Right. I mean, I've been I've been taken to task by a police officer. I've been taken to task by opposing counsel. And my knee jerk reaction is to giggle. Like, OK, you're really upset. Sorry. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's like my react. That's how I react. And they and I think April does something similar. And they always note that she's got this weird. She's laughing a little yeah, bit. It's it gets weird. talked about a lot and it's read in by the jury that she didn't have the appropriate amount of remorse. Yeah. 
Okay, we're on damaging witness number two, and that is Robert Martin. Let's talk about the testimony of Robert Martin. Robert was Terry's best friend who lived in Dallas. In episode two, we told you that April and Terry went on their first real date in Dallas, and it was to visit Robert. Robert testifies for the state in April's murder, and he's a pretty damaging witness for the defense. This guy is Terry's best friend, and you have to assume that he wants April held accountable for his friend's death. Terry and Robert were bosom buddies. <laughs> they like to collect guitars and they like to race fast cars. Boys will be boys. They're both rich. They're both very rich. Yeah, and I think that like Robert Martin's direct isn't super damaging for April, but I don't know. What do you think about that? The only thing I feel pretty bad about that comes out of this and something that Tim latches onto, even in his opening that you heard, is that... Um, he draws out of Robert that um, Terry called him the day that he returned home from Vanita on the last time he visited April at the hospital. And he says, I'm done with her. We're broken up for good. I'm, I'm not together with her anymore. She's in love with someone else, which we know is what April told him at the hospital. And um, I'm going to sell everything and move to Dallas and be with you. Uh, um, and it's a very like, clever way i think of the state uh basically tries to insinuate that she's the final aggressor um like whether or not whatever had happened in their relationship in the past he was done with it and he wasn't going to come after her that night and she had no reason to come there and this is all on her right yeah i think that that's damaging stuff that does come out um on direct you're right about that the thing that happens on cross though with Lyons, when he gets up to cross-examine this witness, there's like some major, I think, uh, strategic missteps. And one of them is that he's not like making much of an effort to impeach Robert Martin because some of the things that he testifies to on, on direct examination are like, no, I had no idea that Terry was a drug addict. You know, a like April tried to tell me and then I went to see Terry and Terry was like, she's a crazy bitch. I don't have any track marks, look at my arms. Well, we know from DeStefano's testimony, it was all over his legs, right? So there's this opportunity to be like, well, would you be surprised to learn that he had track marks all over his legs? He was hiding his addiction from you. Are you surprised to hear about that? Do you think you knew your friend as well as you're sitting here saying that you knew him? Yeah. And then like, they actually ask him, did you know that April's April and Terry's relationship was pretty on and off? And he says, no, I thought it was great. I thought it was fine. Um, and it's like, okay, well, did you know he sued her for $10,000 for the lost engagement ring? Like, did you think it was going fine then? Or, um, when he, when she was filing rape charges on him, which you also knew about, did you still think it was going fine? Yeah. I mean, one of the worst parts of, of Robert's testimony is when he says, well, she was going to try to accuse him of rape. But then they found this little bag of sex toys and he keeps saying little bag of sex toys over and over again. And he says, so then they decided to drop it. And Chris actually capitalizes on that moment and says, so what you're saying is he did, she didn't have a strong case. And um, Martin walks it back and says, no, what I'm saying, I mean, is that he didn't rape her. And it's like, oh, wait, that's not what you meant. And maybe you're kind of covering up for your friend here. Like, this is what it read as to me. Yeah, and I don't. I, I wish that Chris had really jumped on it. Like, you, you've got to take that and you have to hammer him with it until the state objects and gets you to move on. Because this guy's fucking lying. 
I really, he's like, oh yeah, I knew that he did meth, but I didn't know he was addicted to meth. And I only, I swear to God, I'm under oath, I only ever had martinis and pot. I, I never saw him on all of the multiple trips that they came down and went in limos and went to strip clubs and went to bars with them. I never saw him doing any other drugs besides martinis and pot. When we know Terry could barely go a single day without like one hard drug or the other. Yeah. So either he's completely presenting a whole different person to his best friend or his best friend is covering up for him. Yeah. And there are many opportunities to like impeach him real hard on that. And it's just like he wouldn't he Robert testifies. He would never have told me he was addicted to meth because he knows I wouldn't have approved of it. Oh, do you think that maybe he would not have told you he raped her? Maybe he thought you wouldn't have approved of that. Would you have approved of him raping her? Would you have approved of him abusing her? Maybe he wasn't telling you these things because, you know, he didn't think you would approve, just like the drug use. What do you think about that, Mr. Martin? Right. And then, like, the ultimate question that before you end is, like, is it possible, Mr. Martin, that you didn't know your friend as well as you thought you did? I mean, and seen whether it's whether it's objected to or not, like you get it in. Yeah, man. You, yeah, man. <laughs> you just get it in. <laughs> you just say it. It's hard to unring that bell. It's one of those things where, like, there might be an objection. There might be a limiting instruction. You don't want to get admonished, though. It's a fine line. You don't want to get admonished. But I mean, the most he ever most court ever does in this is say nothing. The attorney say is evidence. I mean, it's the same thing he says every time, but he only ever says it about about sorry, about Tim. And kind of the last thing I want to get into with Robert Martin is this narrative that Terry is weaving with him that not only is April a crazy bitch, but his previous ex-girlfriend, Melinda Wallace, was a crazy bitch. Like he goes into, he develops this narrative of like, Melinda Wallace was in my house breaking shit. So I had to break the door down and drag her out. He does the same thing with April. She's in the, I, she locked herself in the bathroom and started breaking things. So I had no choice. I had to kick the door in and pull her out and throw her out of my house. Um, which is a really convenient narrative for explaining why your own door is broken in. But um, so the crazy bitch narrative, the crazy bitch trope, uh, I think is something he really, he, he does with Robert Martin pretty effectively. And we kind of get this thing, this other thing on cross that comes out that did not come out on direct that Lyons sort of accidentally stumbles into is an incident that happens in May of 1997. And so I don't know, Colleen, do you want to give us a little background on what happened? Yeah, so what, what Robert testifies to is that Terry came down one one weekend um, from Tulsa to Dallas, and it was a weekend that Robert also had his family staying at the house. And um, it gets to be late at night, everyone's asleep, even, including his family, like nieces and I think his sister or something. And he wasn't very specific about that part. But um, so then April comes, drives down from Tulsa to Dallas in the middle of the night, according to him, and comes into his house and starts opening bedrooms looking for Terry to try to talk to him. And he actually has to throw her out of the house in the middle of the night. She comes back to the house in the morning and asks to have a conversation with Terry and he finally agrees to go outside with her and talk with her and they talk on the front yard and then she leaves. 
He also testifies, just real quick, one of the things that Robert Martin testifies to is that the only thing he ever heard April saying to Terry was, you're not going to do this to me. And this is apparently also at a time when their relationship's just fine, right? I mean, I don't never had any problems in their relationship. Not nary a problem in sight. But so that's one of the things, this this statement, I think, is you you need to hear it in its specificity because what he says, that April says, is you're not going to do this to me. And I think when you hear the full context of what happened leading up to this moment, it's going to fucking piss you off. Um, The backstory is that Terry was actually threatening to take the revenge porn photos that he had taken of her to her ex-husband and her ex-father-in-law so that they would try to um, take sole custody of Hunter. So here's April talking about that drive down to Dallas to confront Terry in May of 1997. Why I confronted Terry, I remember like what he was threatening me with and why I was so scared and and terrified. Not only was he threatening me um, with the pictures, he was threatening me with promising me that he was going to cause me to lose custody of my son. And that, and I that's, I was terrified. And so he, not just threat, he said that he was going to go to my ex-husband, Eric, and he was going to go to my ex-father-in-law, Roy, and um, give him copies of the pictures and tell them that I had used the drugs with him. Well, I don't know if he was going to say with him, but that I had used the drugs. He's been in the in Greece. And so um, I didn't know how they would react to, like, sex pictures. And um, I was really terrified because I knew I was just terrified of losing Hunter, right? And I, I knew that if they ever wanted Hunter, that that family had enough power that I would lose custody. <sighs> Gosh, I just remember being so scared um, that I was going to lose the thing most precious to me. What a motherfucker. I mean, I knew it had to be bad. I knew it had to be something fucking bad. Yeah. And that's why she says you're not going to do this to me. Yeah, so you can see why somebody might drive all night after hearing April's version of the events, why somebody might drive all night to make sure that this individual knew that he was not going to do this to her. He was not going to inject himself into her actual family relationship and the dynamic that she had with her son and her ex-husband. I would drive all night for that. Doesn't take methamphetamine to get me there. Listen, also, and we've said this to each other, but I don't think we've said it in the podcast yet. It's not an all night drive from Tulsa to Dallas. It is four and a half hours. Like, especially at night when there's not that much traffic, it's not like you're like fiending for meth and driving nine hours to Santa Fe from here. Like, that's not what's happening. It's literally like you could do it from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. I mean, come on. It's not like this image that they cast of her of like this like amped up methed out person driving the turnpike all night like that's not what happened yeah and um we'll see when we get to the episodes where we discuss the defense's case we're actually going to see that um the defense expert doesn't do much to aid april in, in avoiding this narrative but so tropes coming through with robert martin right are um uh slut shaming Yes. Sex toys means you can't be raped. Sorry, girls. <laughs> like, what the fuck? 
You cannot enjoy sex with your fiance and then also potentially revoke consent at, at any point. Not, nope, not possible. Yeah. So we have the slut shaming trope. We have the, the drug addiction because kind of starting to creep in through this, through the driving all night deal and the kind of psychotic behavior. Right. Crazy bitch. This is crazy ex-girlfriend time. Yep. This is, man, <laughs> aren't you lucky you're not in a relationship with a woman like that? Yeah. Boy, Terry, you sure know how to pick them. That's two in a row that have been crazy bitches who will go into the bathroom and lock the door and start breaking shit so that you have to break it down. He certainly has a type. Wow. What are you doing to them, Terry? He makes them crazy. So anyway, missed opportunity really to impeach a witness who deserves it, right? In his martini pot smoking face. <laughs> uh, and we just don't get that. It would have been really satisfying if I'd gotten a chance to cross-examine. I would like to watch that. Can we like reenact? <laughs> it's not as, a reenactment will never be as good as no. the original. Okay. Anything else on Robert Martin? I think that that's it. Um, and then we're going to move to the third Detrimental Witness, which is actually the last one that we're going to be talking about before we read um, Rebecca Nightingale's closing, which I feel will shock and awe most of the people listening to this. Um, shock and awe, baby. <laughs> that's the theory. That's the that's the the uh, trial strategy. Okay, so the third most third detrimental witness. I won't say most detrimental because I think they all three in combined. You'll see as you listen to this uh, have a combined impact or uh, they come together <sighs> to form um, this the tropes that we've talked about. Really, these this narrative April being psychotic, crazy bitch girlfriend probably on drugs and willing to cry rape. Yes. Yes. Um, but also a mastermind, right? Yeah. At the same time, a total mastermind that can premeditate murder and like set up the scene perfectly to be one of self-defense after the fact. Um, so this third witness is officer Bennett. Officer Bennett is one of the officers called by the state side and he actually responded to a call that April made from Dr. Laughlin's house on April 11th, 1998. There was a domestic with a gun call at Terry's house um, and that one of the parties was suicidal. And this incident happened pretty much two weeks before the shooting at Terry's house. So Officer Bennett is a pretty damaging witness. Um, this is the period of time after April has escaped Parkside the first time she went AWOL because she stole the keys from the, the nurse while she was playing Uno. And I think we talked about that in one of the earlier episodes. And she um, went to her house. And when she's at her house, Terry actually opens the door on her with a key. And she's very surprised by that. And then he's actually holding the 38 pistol that Luke gave her for protection when he breaks in with the key. And so he actually just takes her with him hostage that same day and holds her hostage at his house for three full days. And we're not really sure. We don't have like a lot of information about what happens during those days. We know it was pretty horrible. Um, he was taking a lot of meth. She was taking a lot of meth. He was um, at one point, he tried to push her onto the kitchen floor to rape her. Um, and she gets away, she kind of wiggles away and goes down into the basement. And then he, uh, pushes her onto something sharp on the couch. 
and she sort of jumps up. It could be like a piece of a guitar or something on the couch that was sharp. We don't know. And in the process of all this, the, the TV turns on and it really freaks Terry out. So she is able to get away because he's so freaked out by the um, TV coming on. He's also telling her, this is where he's calling, he's like saying he's going to slit both their throats and, and calling it a double suicide. Yes. And he's not making, he's just like, he's not making sense. He's been, he's completely deranged right now during this. And it's probably a combination of the drugs, but also he clearly has mental health issues. He is suicidal. And she's honestly like worried for his life. So she, on the way out of the house, grabs the three of the guns and a bunch of syringes because she wants to be able to show proof because she's had so many times when people have come and she hasn't been able to, no one will believe her. Case in point, Robert Martin going to visit Terry and him being like, she's crazy. Look at my arms. I have no track marks. Yes. So she knows if I don't come with the receipts, you know, I'm going to be questioned and not believed. So she takes all this stuff, shoves it into her purse, goes across the street to Dr. Laughlin's house and calls Divis. She doesn't want to call the police again because she knows, especially if it's a suicide call, that she's probably going to end up getting taken back to Parkside because she went AWOL. So she asks Mrs. Laughlin to call Divis. She does. But because this is a suicide call with a gun, Divis isn't trained to respond to that. And they send the police. And Officer Bennett and Officer Watkins are the two officers that respond to this call. April is actually in Dr. Laughlin's backyard looking across the street from across the fence when they respond because she doesn't want to get close enough that he can sort of try to try to draw her back in. But she wants to see what happens and see if he gets taken somewhere or taken to jail or something. Because at this time, he has an open warrant for carrying a loaded firearm in front of her house. That's right. So... She's thinking, okay, he definitely has the warrant out. I'm just going to watch him, watch him get arrested. So that way I can feel safe and go home. Um, that's not what happened. So Officer Bennett testifies that he and Officer Watkins pull up. They do a strategic approach because they hear there's a gun. Um, they encounter April first. And he sees all of the guns in her purse and the syringes and he testifies to the court in her first degree murder trial that she was the actual threat. Yeah, she seemed more threatening. And like the 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 thing about Officer Bennett is that there's just like some shitty lazy police work that's happening with him. So he they roll up, they do a strategic approach and Terry like comes out holding a guitar so they're like this dude's not a threat. We've decided. He's totally chill. And when they get over across the street to start talking to uh, Mrs. Laughlin in April, you know, they look in April's bag, they see the syringes, they see the guns. And there's just like, April is also like, unfortunately on meth. And also she had been taking lithium for that week or so that she was in Parkside. So she's just starting to come off the lithium because it's been three days. Yeah. They were forcing her to take it. They would check inside your mouth to see if you swallowed it or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, so she's coming off lithium on meth, definitely not presenting her best self. Having been held hostage for three days by her longtime abuser. Yes. Who is a master fucking manipulator. If we're going to talk about manipulation, one, we already know he manipulated his best friend, Robert Martin, testified to it. We know that he was hiding his drug use from anybody that was close to him. He was very, very good at that. 
So it's not surprising to me that he is able to control himself in the presence of law enforcement. It's also not surprising to me that law enforcement are more apt to give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he is a little jittery. Maybe he seems a little unsure. Well, something crazy is going down. He has a right to be jittery, but not April. No. April's the threat because she has the guns on her and she also has the drug paraphernalia because she's like crying out for someone to listen to her. Mm Mm-hmm. And this officer's not going to do that. It's not him. It's not this. Sorry, April. It's not this guy yet again. Nope. So um, he testifies that he believes that she is a homicidal risk and that he is going to take her back to Parkside because Terry, when Terry comes out of the house strumming his guitar like a minstrel, he lets them know that she's gone AWOL from Parkside just three days ago, sir. And so she gets she gets put back in the paddy wagon Um, but Terry also gets put in the paddy wagon and they ask officer Bennett at trial. Well, if you didn't think he was a 5150 risk, which means a danger to yourself or others, why did you take him to Parkside also? And officer Bennett says, that wasn't my decision. I didn't think that was warranted. That was officer Watkins. There's also this other thing that we haven't touched on yet. Um, (laughs) where, uh, so the com there's this, this, a very important detail gets confused here. And it, it the way that it get con- gets confused make, causes it to wind up in the Parkside records incorrectly. So we've told you guys about the event back in February of um, 98, where Luke Draffen allows him into the house and he tries to rape April and she pulls the 38 from behind her headboard and points it at him and fires it and it doesn't go off, right? We've talked about that, about how um, he says to her in that moment, I'm God and I'm Satan. That event is happening in February of 98, okay? And also she's defending herself against great bodily injury, which the law says you're allowed to do with with lethal force, just so you know. Right, right. And rape is um, a great bodily injury. Don't believe me? If you're the misogynist still listening, I want to hear from you, sir. I really want to talk to you. But no, so that event is, again, happening in February of 1998, before she ever gets committed. There's this discussion that is, April does not recall telling Officer Bennett this. It may have been something that Terry offered up, but the way it gets offered up to Officer Bennett and the way that he remembers it and his precious little brain is that it happens on April 11th, that it's happened earlier that day, that it's part of this call that he's there for. And, you know, she's got the guns on her and Terry's saying that she pointed a gun at him and shot it and that, you know, he's the God and he's the devil and this is happening now. Well, that shit gets confused. Thanks to Officer Bennett and his poor policing. I'm going to say it again. Bad police work. But then that makes it into not just the Parkside records when she gets readmitted, that she just pulled a gun on someone just that day, which is false. Incorrect. The timeline is wrong, guys. That was from two months before and it was it was justified. But anyways, it also makes it into all of the prosecution's arguments and all of the mental health records saying she's homicidal. That's right. It develops this narrative of her being homicidal from April 11th going forward to the shooting. Fucking what? Could the cops be any worse at this? I just like, I, what are we paying taxes for? <laughs> like, that's your one job. <laughs> just get the de- you gotta be very detail oriented, guys. Well, and I don't think, I'm sorry to be devil's advocate for him. I really don't like myself right now. 
but somebody's got to do it. I'm sure she wasn't being very clear. Yes. And I'm sure that she was kind of scattered and talking fast, like we've been saying. And it's a complicated narrative of facts. It is. (laughs) And if you're not invested in helping a person that you're responding to a call from, if you just want to get it over with because it's just another domestic you had to answer today and you're ready to get back out to the real action, then you're probably not going to document it correctly because you're not super invested in what happens to I this think, person. Yeah, more than more than being just like bad police work, I think that's... Thank you for grounding me, bringing me back down from my angry soapbox. I do think that that's a big part of what's going on here because April, we know, talks fast. And if you're on meth, you're talking even faster. And we know she's been through fucking hell and she's traumatized and like... None. She just. She probably wasn't the most coherent, and you're probably right that this is like one of many domestic calls that this guy is having to deal with on a weekly basis. So, yeah, investment them, is low in, in solving this issue. And most of the domestic calls that he responds to are not followed back up on, are not press charges on, are not with cooperating witnesses, are not going to lead to an arrest, and so it's like. I just want to get this call over with and be done and go back to my cool, high-profile policing patrolling job where I get to deal with cops and robbers. Right, right. And and we're going to hear from the experts in a couple of weeks about why a lot of that is true as far as, like, the reporting and the following up. Very, It's classic, classic domestic violence cycle. So anyway, I don't know. Officer Bennett pisses me off because of his testimony is so bad, but it doesn't seem like he he cares about getting it right. No, and it's like it's almost imperceptible how damaging that mistake is until you start unraveling this and looking at the rest of the mental health records and the fact that they're basing her her quote unquote homicide homicidal nature, which later we'll talk about in the defense episode that Dr. Call is asked directly, pointedly, you say in your report she was homicidal. Do you still agree with that? And he says, absolutely. That's all stemming from this from this incident that was incorrectly reported. And it's like, did anyone talk to April? And even if they had, would it have mattered? Because by the end of this trial, as you guys are going to see, her credibility is just shot. It's so shot. But like, did anybody go to her and say, April, listen, this report's been made about you having fired this gun today. Like, what's going on? No, because she was an escapee from Parkside Mental Health Facility. She was on drugs and she was suffering from PTSD. And nobody at this point believes anything that she's saying. Yep. 100%. Which is why being trauma-informed in, in mental health and, and, and especially law enforcement in our profession too, being trauma informed, we need more of that training because people are missing the signs and they're just right there in front of them. So any final thoughts on Bennett? No, other than he's, I feel like honestly, in some ways he's sort of like, because he gets called so late in the state's case, he's sort of like the final nail in the coffin for her. Like to have an officer, not only the officers that responded on that day, but an officer from a completely different um scenario where get up on the stand and say she was the threat she was the violent one and i found her to be homicidal completely cannot rehabilitate from that yeah and also just one note about what happens to terry on this day you know he gets he does get taken to parkside but he's released the same day april is kept for another two weeks and change 
yeah, this is when she gets transferred to ESH because she's not being compliant with the same nurse that she escaped from the week before, who actually puts her in restraints and will not let her go to the bathroom. And because she has a PTSD reaction when they put her in the restraints, they say she was not being cooperative, and that is why they transfer her to Eastern State. This is a fucking horror movie. I forgot that tidbit. That So the nurse from whom she steals the keys to escape, which like, just the decision-making is so hard. It's so hard because it's it's all based on her trauma and survival at this point. But so she steals these keys from this nurse, escapes, and that's the nurse that's assigned to her when she's returned. And that nurse had been... Um, disciplined over the steal, the key, the key stealing as she should have been she should have been paying attention right she needed she deserved the discipline and i'm not saying that this nurse lashed out or did something unethical but she does put her in restraints and april has an adverse reaction to that mm-hmm. so she's combative and it all feeds this narrative of her being this aggressor yep she can't catch a break man nope we're leaping now to uh, closing statements, uh, we're skipping over the defense's presentation of evidence and going straight to the state's closing. And Rebecca Brett Nightingale presents the first part of the state's closing because the state actually, as the prosecutor or the plaintiff in the case, gets to reserve a portion of their closing. So the very last word is going to come from Tim Harris. He'll do the the final part of the closing. But um, we thought that you guys might find this this interesting because Ms. Nightingale interjects uh, and an incredibly untested and unproven theory of the case when uh, she makes her closing. It's, it's kind of stunning because it's almost the very first mention of it in the entire case. But uh, her, her closing centers on this theory that April came down the basement stairs to find Terry playing or cleaning his guitar, and she shot him as he began to stand up. Well, this does not line up with any of the forensic evidence as testified to by the state's own witnesses. Uh, the only blood on that guitar came from uh, Terry after he fell down. So he wasn't holding it. The guitar is not damaged or, or dented in any way after falling on a hard tile floor. Remember, he's six feet. Maybe if he's sitting, maybe it's three feet off the ground. But it didn't have any. It had no damage. Uh, there's no blood on the chair. No bullet wounds in either or no bullet holes in either of the, the guitar or the chair. So she's coming out of left field with a theory about Terry sitting down. And um, there's actually not an objection from defense on this, uh, that this is a, a discussion of, th- th- this is presenting facts, not in evidence. So here's the closing. May it please the court. Thank you. Prosecutor claps hands one time. Call an ambulance, I'm paralyzed. Prosecutor claps hands seven times. As Terry Carlton laid on the cold basement floor on April 28, 1998, expirating blood with each breath, blowing out blood like a fountain, as testified to by Roy Hine, the defendant went and paged the man that had been supplying her with drugs. The defendant now comes into court a year later and wants you, members of the jury, to believe that she acted in self-defense on April the 28th, 1998. Self-defense, members of the jury, is a great theory. It's too bad that the facts of this case spoil that theory for the defendant. The facts of this case are Terry Carlton and the defendant had a tumultuous relationship. The state of Oklahoma has never represented to you otherwise. 
The two of them met, they had a great romance, and at some point, their personalities began to become incompatible. Both parties, members of the jury, contributed to their tumultuous relationship. Domestic violence in the state of Oklahoma does not carry the death penalty, but that's what the defendant sentenced Terry Carlton to on April the 28th, 1998. Let's look at the facts. On April 26th, 1998, Terry Carlton goes to visit the defendant. He is the only person that goes to visit the defendant at Eastern State Hospital. He's the only person that cares. He cares enough to make arrangements to try to get the defendant placed in St. John's under the care of Dr. Farrow. But the defendant tells Terry Carlton it's over. I'm in love with somebody else. Terry Carlton becomes angry about that. Yes, he does. The end of a two or three year relationship is upsetting. He goes home. He does not pick her up at the hospital. He tells his friend Robert Martin, his best friend, it's over, I'm not picking her up at the hospital. I think I'll sell my house and move to Dallas. Terry Carlton was never able to take those actions because this defendant had another plan. This defendant's plan was after getting out of Eastern State Hospital by escaping from 12 and 12, a drug rehabilitation program which she was subjected to, by pretending to go to the bathroom and escaping from an Eastern State Hospital person, throwing her shoes at her in a violent action. She goes home. She hasn't had meth since April 11th, 1998. Methamphetamine. Methamphetamine is this defendant's drug of choice. She was clearly an IV drug user and an IV drug abuser. She was stopped on April 11th, 1998, members of the jury. She had methamphetamine loaded in a syringe in her purse. She had spoons, she had used syringes, she had a drug track mark on her left arm the size of a peanut M&M and one even larger on her right arm. She hadn't had drugs since April the 11th, 1998. The first thing she did was start looking for the drugs. And where does she go first, members of the jury? She testified she got most of her drugs from Luke Draffin. Well, Luke Draffin didn't want to have anything to do with the defendant. He did not invite her over. He said he returned her page the first time when she called him from the Blue Rose. He did not tell her where he was, but the defendant takes off to the executive inn where she knows him to have stayed in the past. And when she got there, Luke Draffin would not let her up. That makes this defendant very angry. She's beating on his car. She leaves the keys on his car, and then she takes off like a ninja in the night on rollerblades at 1.30 a.m. In the morning of April 28, 1998, Officer Jane Massick responds to a call. There's a woman beating on a car. She encounters the defendant. The defendant is angry with the man in the room because he won't let her up. She's angry because Luke Draffin will not supply her with the methamphetamine that she desperately needs. How do you know how desperate this defendant is for her drug of choice? She herself testifies that she's done methamphetamine since she's been in the custody of the Tulsa County Jail. That's how desperate this defendant is for her drug of choice. Officer Masick drives her home. Does this defendant ever mention with Officer Jane Masick that her house has been trashed? Never mentions it. Has this defendant ever made a burglar report when she got home on April 27th? after escaping from 12 and 12, saying that her house had been trashed? She never made such a report. Members of the jury, her friend testified that she was over at that house earlier in March and it was already trashed. The defendant did not make such a report to the police when she got home or to the officer Jane Masick because her house had not been trashed. And then when she gets home, it's about 2 a.m. She's still restless 
She's still looking for that methamphetamine, and she so desperately needs it. She knows that Luke Draffin is not an option anymore. She's tried that. So what does she do? She walks over to the house of Terry Carlton. She makes a statement that he that she beats on the door and gets Terry Carlton to wake up. Well, members of the jury, when you're considering the defendant's testimony here in court, there are a couple of things I'd like you to keep in mind. I wrote down a few things that she said when she was testifying. First of all, when she was being asked about the truth, she said, and I quote, truth can be changed based on your perceptions. Truth can be changed based on your perceptions. In response to questioning about the drug, she said, quote, I told the truth as I saw it at the time. Well, members of the jury, truth does not ever change. A person's perception may change about it, but the truth doesn't change. But to this defendant, truth can change. It can be manipulated. Her truth is that she beat on the door that night. She also testified that Terry Carlton is a very difficult to wake up sometimes. Well, the state of Oklahoma would submit to you that she entered that house using a key. The defendant encountered Terry Carlton and what did he want to do? Go back upstairs and go to sleep. Whether the, what did the defendant want to do? She wanted to shoot meth. And what did they do? They went downstairs to the basement, they cooked up some meth, and she injected herself with methamphetamine that she so desperately needed. The defendant first tells Detective Ken Makinson that it's the first time she ever used methamphetamine. Then she comes into court and says, well, what I meant was that kind of methamphetamine. It was my first time to ever use that kind. And then later she testified that methamphetamine is basically the same. She manipulates the truth as she perceived it, and it depends on who she's talking to, what truth she wishes to come out. After the defendant and Terry Carlton shoot methamphetamine, the defendant told Officer Fatum that she went upstairs to use the phone. She tells Officer Makinson that she went upstairs to use the bathroom. She does both as a reminder. Sorry, I just want to interject that. She tells you, members of the jury, she went upstairs to use the bathroom because she's so modest she needed to use the vent. This is a woman who admitted that she had pictures taken of herself in acts of sexual intercourse with her boyfriend. That she's so modest she goes upstairs to use a bathroom with a vent. Based on her truth, members of the jury, she comes out of the bathroom and there she is confronted with Terry Carlton with a gun. And as she showed you on the diagram, states exhibit number 19, Terry Carlton took her through this day room, which she described as a dressing room, a woman's dressing room, and through the bedroom ripped her shorts off, ripped her shoes off, and raped her. Well, members of the jury, if you will recall back when Roy Heim was narrating the crime scene video that's been introduced in this court as State's Exhibit Number 73-A, there was a full picture of this door to this day room slash dressing room, and he testified, quote, you'll see that door is locked and you'll see it from the other side because we couldn't get in. The perception, according to the defendant, when she testified over those three days period, was that Terry dragged her through a room with a door that was locked. She never testified in her direct examination anything about Terry Carlton ever locking any door. But when questioned about it on cross-examination, suddenly she comes up with the fact that, oh yeah, Terry might have locked us in the room. She's changing the truth as she goes along. Now, when you're considering members of the jury, whether Terry Carlton ripped her shoes off in that bedroom, refer to State's Exhibit Number 28. That's a photograph of the tennis shoes that she admits that she had on that night. Are they thrown willy-nilly about the room as if somebody had ripped them off her body and thrown them from the bed? 
which is located over here. No, members of the jury. Look on the diagram. States exhibit number 19 and look at the picture. It looks as if she's kicked them off by herself by the closet, where people remove their shoes at night, where people remove their shoes. She had sexual intercourse with Terry Carlton that night. It wasn't rape. It was consensual. She told Officer Fatum that initially, when she was downstairs, she finally gave in because of their past relationship. Members of the jury, Terry Carlton did not rip her shoes off and rape her that night. The next thing the defendant claims happened is herself and Terry Carlton walked down the stairs and went to the basement. And while they're down there, everything's going fine. Everything seemed fine. She goes back upstairs by herself, members of the jury. This man that she claims that's kidnapped her and locked her in the house after she claims he's raped her allows her to walk freely about the house. She walks by herself up the basement stairs. She walks out the door, down the hall. She passes the front door one time by herself after she alleges that she was raped. She then goes up the stairs, members of the jury, by her claim either one, that she had to use the telephone or that she had to use the bathroom. She's made different statements about what she was doing upstairs. When she gets upstairs, she goes to the nightstand where the loaded 22 caliber firearm is located. This firearm, members of the jury, she checks it, makes sure it's loaded and ready to go. A direct quote from her to Officer Laura Fatum. After she checks it and makes sure it's ready to go, she packs it away for later use. But that's not all that she took when she was upstairs in the bedroom. She also takes from Terry Carlton his car keys, his money, his credit cards, his telephone, and she loads them up. She takes Terry Carlton's belongings, and she loads them in her own backpack. So now she's loaded with his money, his credit cards, his car keys, his telephone, and his police radio. She goes back down into the basement. And when she goes back down into the basement, members of the jury, while carrying a loaded firearm on her, she walks past the front door again by herself the second time she's had an opportunity to leave. In her statement to Detective Makinson, which is on videotape and you will all have the opportunity to watch that videotape should you choose, he asks her if she had the chance to leave and she says, yeah, I could have left. Well, that's two times, members of the jury. She's by herself. She's directly by the front door. Instead of going out the front door or using the telephone to call 911, she goes back down into the basement with a loaded firearm. Now, she knows how to use this firearm because she's taken a combat pistol course. She's checked it. She's made sure it's ready to go. She's got it accessible. She's got all the implements to get away. And with that backpack, she again approaches the basement door. And she leaves her backpack. In State's Exhibit number 18, right there by another door. She could have left a third time, members of the jury. But she didn't because she hadn't done what she'd come for. It wasn't to make peace with Terry Carlton. It was to make sure that there was a resolution. She wanted it to be over. She's now loaded with a 22 caliber firearm. Terry Carlton already thinks it's over, but the defendant went to his house to make sure it was over for him. She walks back down into the basement. She drops her backpack by the back door and she walks into the music room. Members of the jury, when you get back in the jury room, look carefully at State's Exhibit number 72 and the other scene photographs about that music room. Terry Carlton was very meticulous with his guitars. They're hung around the room on, on stands. 
you'll see in other scene pictures that there are some guitars that are in guitar stands on the floor. No guitars laying about. No guitars lying on the floor except for one. States exhibit number 71, members of the jury, the acoustic guitar. It's laying in this picture almost exactly as if he was playing it or cleaning it with a rag. The state of Oklahoma would submit to you, members of the jury, that when the defendant went back downstairs in that basement, Terry Carlton was sitting in the chair playing or cleaning that guitar. When the defendant pulls out the loaded and ready to go 22 caliber firearm and shoots Terry Carlton. Her own statement, members of the jury, is that she shot him once, aiming at his head, hit him in the neck. But she wants you to believe it wasn't a calculated thing. She's a good shot, but it wasn't calculated. And when she hits him in the neck, members of the jury, you heard the testimony of Dr. DiStefano that that bullet entered, ricocheted off one of the spinal columns, and then, like shooting in a barrel, it skidded down his flat vertebrae, paralyzing him, essentially. Terry Carlton is laying there paralyzed. Even the defendant could not come up with any imminent danger for herself. And what does she do, members of the jury? She continues to shoot. He just wouldn't die. It seemed like the merciful thing to do. She shot him seven more times, almost a bullseye, a perfect pattern. She shot him and he went down. And as Dr. DiStefano testified, the stippling on his face showed that she had to be about two feet away from him. She walked up on him. He told her he was paralyzed and she responded with the resolution she had come for. She shot him seven more times. And after, the sh after she shot him, did she go call an ambulance? Did she go call the police? No, members of the jury. She went to page her drug dealer, Luke Draff, and told you that he got a page from her at 8.30 in the morning. The defendant's response to emptying the clip in Terry Carlton's head and neck is to page her drug dealer. When her friend from childhood calls Carrie Gaston to check on her well-being with Terry Carlton, she has a five to ten minute conversation with Carrie Gaston, in which Carrie Gaston described the defendant's demeanor as being normal. She was normal. We were having a regular conversation. And after five to ten minutes of the defendant sitting in Terry Carlton's house while he was laying on the cold basement floor dead, she's having a conversation with a childhood friend. Oh yeah, I shot Terry. He's dead in the basement. Carrie Gaston had a hard time believing her. That's how normal the conversation was, members of the jury. That's how matter-of-fact this defendant treated the shooting death of Terry Carlton. She planned it all along. She carried it out, and she says, quote, don't call the police. The defendant's own expert testified from this witness stand that the defendant's actions were stupid and not reasonable. The actions of somebody who is a battered woman subject to the battered woman syndrome no, members of the jury. Dr. Farrow, who treated the defendant herself, testified she did not exhibit the signs of someone subject to battered women's syndrome. She was a homicidal, drug-crazed person who wanted a resolution. And she got it. Because that's what she went over there for, and she went down there with a loaded firearm, and that's what she got. Members of the jury, some other things I'd like you to consider in this case. Jury instruction number 23. The elements of murder in the first degree. The death of a human. There's no question that we have that here. That the death was unlawful. The death was caused by the defendant. There's no question about that. And that the death, death is caused with malice aforethought. Malice aforethought is defined in instruction number 24 as a deliberate intention to take the life of a human being. Now, unlawful? Yes. This woman was not a battered woman under the battered woman syndrome as testified to you by Dr. Teresa Farrow. 
Her own actions were not reasonable, as testified to you by Dr. John Call. Members of the jury, domestic violence in the state of Oklahoma does not carry the death penalty. The defendant subjected Terry Carlton to that very thing. In the videotaped statement of Detective Ken Makinson, the defendant states, I kept trying to find reasons not to shoot him. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm tired of it. I wanted to get out of it. I shot. That's when I shot him. Instead of relying on the things that the laws of the state of Oklahoma provide, such as protective orders, police protection, she relied on herself. Her only option? No. You heard the number of officers that testified that they told her about domestic violence intervention services. One officer even helped her get a protective order in the middle of the night. The defendant chose not to prevail herself, <coughs> excuse me, avail herself to the services available to somebody in her claimed predicament. Now, she testified that she did not avail herself to the assistance of Parkside, of Eastern State Hospital, of Domestic Violence Intervention Services, of the Tulsa Police Department, because she was scared. This is a woman who believes that the truth can be changed on her own perceptions. This is a woman who said we all manipulate in everything we do. This defendant has been described as being manipulative by Dr. John Call, and you yourselves had the opportunity to look and watch the defendant over this three weeks of trial. You yourselves had the opportunity to see her attempt to manipulate you during the course of this trial. You had the opportunity to observe her actions as she's been in court. We all manipulate in everything we do. No, members of the jury. Truth does not change based on our perceptions. We don't all manipulate in everything we do. But the defendant does not want to take responsibility for her actions on April the 28th, 1998. The defendant gunned Terry Carlton down in cold blood after he told her he was paralyzed to call for an ambulance. She shot the remaining seven bullets in that gun. And then she allowed him to languish and die, to lay there expirating blood as she just stood by and paged her drug dealer. Truth cannot be manipulated, members of the jury. Don't be manipulated by the actions of a person who has been repeatedly described as being manipulative. As a person who was so drug crazed that the minute she got out of the hospital, she paged her drug dealer. She went over to her drug dealer's house. And when he wouldn't give her drugs, she went to the source she knew where she could get it. She went over there for final resolution. She armed herself with a 22 caliber firearm and she shot and killed Terry Carlton. For these actions, members of the jury, the state of Oklahoma is asking you to return a verdict of guilty for murder in the first degree and sentence this defendant to life without the possibility of parole. Because that, members of the jury, is exactly what this defendant deserves. Thank you. We hope this episode showed you a few things. One, how easy it is to convict someone of murder. Two, how April had the tiniest box of acceptable behavior to operate in, and how any small inconsistencies, especially when she'd been traumatized and fought for her life, were used to her detriment and never to her advantage. Before we get into the defense case in April's trial, we want you to hear something the jury didn't get to hear. Next week on Panic Button, you'll hear the tale of the other murder associated with the Carlton family and how April felt when Terry told her she would be next. That's next week. Thanks for listening. 
is a co-production of Oklahoma Appleseed Center for Law and Justice and Leslie Briggs. We're your hosts, Colleen McCarty and Leslie Briggs. Our theme music is Velvet Rope by Guillaume. The production team is Leslie Briggs and Rusty Rowe. We're recorded at Bison and Bean Studio in Tulsa. Special thanks to Lynn Worley, Amanda Ross, and Ashlyn Faulkner for their work on this case. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse, use a safe computer and contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-7233. Help others find our show by leaving us a rating and writing a review. Follow us at OK underscore Appleseed across all social platforms. You can subscribe right now on the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then